0: Welcome to the Houston Healthcare Initiative podcast. My name is Harold Nickel. Later in the podcast, we'll have a guest who uh, will talk to us about mental health, students, and the COVID 19 vaccine pandemic situation. Her name is Dr. Deborah Atkinson, and we'll be very pleased to chat with her. But first, we're going to talk with Dr. Stephen Goldstein. Dr. Goldstein, of course, founded the Houston Healthcare Initiative podcast. And on this edition, he's going to help get us better acquainted with what proposals the Biden administration has for health care and explore other possible ways for how health care can also be fixed. Now, Dr. Goldstein, you've spoken about how the last administration wanted to approach health care. The new one has three announced priorities. What can you tell us about them?
1: It's fair to say that for every plan proposed for health care, each one morphs into something different than what was initially intended. So first, before I describe these, I'll predict that this will be the case for the Biden administration as well. What comes out of the process will likely not look very much like what is proposed.
0: Yeah, that's, um, I think, the blender of public discourse and bargaining among our elected officials. Um, that's going to be on full display for us all then, right?
1: Yes, just like always. The past is almost always prologue. But let me get back to the original question. Of the three goals, first, the COVID-19 pandemic response. Part of the goal is to prevent overcapacity of limited hospital beds and critical care space during spice of the virus outbreak. Others include the ability to establish temporary hospitals and better way to track COVID searches via technology making telehealth options more widely available, and tasking all relevant federal agencies to set up temporary hospitals, and getting the CDC to develop real-time tracking dashboards to better predict when surges would occur, where they are, and other details needed to better inform healthcare professionals about the evolution of the pandemic.
0: Now, the second of the three priorities has to do with the Affordable Care Act, or as it is more popularly known, Obamacare.
1: That's right. Overall, the Biden administration wants to reduce costs, provide more options, and make the whole system easier to navigate. Well, the stated goal is to reduce costs for the American public. As part of a separate pandemic relief bill, there's $34 billion to help Americans who buy insurance from the health plan marketplace that was created by Obamacare now through 2022 when those benefits expire. Those who know about it state that this would help lower, help lower and middle-income Americans who have fallen through the cracks of the government eligibility requirements for Obamacare. It would also help people who choose policies, lower premiums, and higher deductibles. There is
0: also assistance for the unemployed. I tend to forget that the insurance exchanges sell health insurance, and it is absolutely not free.
1: No, it's not. The things I've cited so far are just the tip of the iceberg. But to summarize, there are about 15 million uninsured people who are eligible to buy insurance through the health insurance exchanges, most of whom would now be eligible for new or larger subsidies.
0: And the third goal deals with Medicare.
1: Yeah. One of the more visible proposals is to decrease the age of people who are eligible for Medicare from the current 65 to 60 years of age. Those who endorse this change cite early retirees and those who are unemployed. While well, those who oppose it point to the nation's current deficits and the need to tackle the solvency timeline issue.
0: Yeah, I think it's that last point that may need a little bit more elaboration. I've not heard anything today that sounds bad or even a little controversial until the subject
1: of money comes up. That's right. Nothing is free. While we can think of these as beneficial to society, there is a considerable cost that comes along with it. Instead of transferring more money to people, there are other ways to use existing health care payment strategies that will benefit everyone. Okay. um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, I mentioned the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, and discussed the cost and affordability. Rather than give further subsidies for insurance premiums that wind up in the hands of insurance companies funds health savings accounts that go directly to the patient. This would enable the patient to be able to afford a higher deductible insurance policy. Patients that do not spend the money in any given year can keep it for future use. Money paid to the insurance company is down the proverbial rattle.
0: Well, now, if we could, Dr. Goldstein, can we take a step back and you explain to us uh, or give us some background on health savings plan.
1: Yes, the health savings account, or HSA, is a type of savings account that is used for medical expenses. HSAs were established for those with high-deductible health insurance coverage. HSAs and high-deductible health plans were created to help control health care costs. The idea is that people will spend their health care dollars more wisely if they're using their own money. The money deposited by individuals in their HSA account is not taxed. Further, HSAs figure a triple tax benefit. Money you contribute to your HSA can be written off your taxes and thus reduce your income tax bill. Money in your HSA grows in compounds, assuming these investments rise, and all is tax-free over time. And when HSA money is withdrawn for qualified medical expenses, no tax is paid on the withdrawal. Okay,
0: but who owns this
1: account? It's owned by the individual so that he or she can pay their health care costs. These include anything from doctor visits to blood tests, paid for with cash from the health savings account.
0: All right. Now, how is this more beneficial than what's been proposed?
1: Because the money in the HSA is owned by the individual who gets to keep whatever is there ever is in the health savings account into perpetuity. Premium subsidies go to insurance companies and allow premiums to go higher and higher for everyone. Okay, let's move to prescription drug
0: prices. Is reforming these receiving bipartisan support,
1: or is the Congress divided along party lines? The Trump administration lost a, quote, transparency and coverage, unquote, ruling in December of 2020 that required health insurers to disclose current drug prices and provide patients with personalized cost estimates. The Biden administration hopes to increase these efforts by repealing existing laws that prevent Medicare from negotiating lower prices with drug corporations. Many people believe that the government already uses its mass buying power with Medicare to negotiate better rates, but this is not the case. These are all extremely
0: complex issues as they were managed for previous decades up until now. They involve doctors, hospitals, insurance companies, the government, and even the citizenry. But to boil this down, isn't the government just planning to put more money into paying for health care?
1: It is complicated, and that is boiled in. But for the purpose of time on the podcast, that pretty well sums it up. And the wider use of the
0: health savings plan allows people to pay cash for their health expenses, accrue and keep interest, and then use that money for non-health care expenses after the owner turns 65 years of
1: age. Is that right? That is correct. Just as important, HSAs allow flexibility and freedom to shop for your treatment that suits you best. It does not limit your health care choices to an artificial network. Yes, that's pretty much it. It's far easier and less expensive than anything proposed. Government needs to be more creative and simply subsidize the insurance company. It needs to focus more on ways to improve public health, which in turn will reduce
0: health care costs. Well as Dr. Goldstein said, these proposals from the new administration will all churn and change as they're reviewed and voted on by the Congress. What you all heard today was but a very small glimpse of what is under consideration. If you have opinions about any of these possible changes, contact your Congressperson or your two senators and let them know what you think and what your ideas are now as I mentioned at the start of the Podcast we have a guest. Dr. Deborah Atkinson joins us here in just a few seconds. Thanks for listening to the Houston Healthcare Initiative Podcast. Hang on for Dr. Deborah Atkinson. Well listeners know we do not have many guests on the Houston Healthcare Initiative podcast, but today is an exception. We are joined by Dr. Deborah Atkinson who will help with answers to questions about starting school in the age of an ongoing pandemic. Dr. Atkinson is a board-certified psychiatrist in adult, adolescent, and child psychiatry. She is a certified coach with the International Coaching Federation. She currently works as a physician development coach at the TCU and University of North Texas Health Science Center School of Medicine and is a child psychiatrist at the Fort Behavioral Health in Fort Worth, Texas. And if that weren't enough, she also has a private practice of coaching. So, Dr. Atkinson, Americans gained an average of about 30 pounds during the pandemic lockdown. And Dr. Stephen Goldstein, who founded the Houston Healthcare Initiative and is a neurologist, related this to a link between long-term stress and the brain's reactions to it as part of the reason for all that extra weight. But what he and listeners wondered about was the emotional impact the pandemic lockdown had on school-age youngsters as many return to school this year. I know that's a really long question, but <laughs> what can you tell us and what can we possibly learn about the kiddos this fall?
2: Well, I think that it's really uh, very impressive. The, assessment that Dr. Goldstein did related to how this has impacted adults. And some of the ways in which the pandemic has impacted adults, the same things have happened with our youth as well. But there are some additional things. So when we think about, uh, he, he mentioned the weight gain. One of the things I'm going to say that has happened to both our children and our teenagers is just like we adults, they have not been as physically active. If we think about the life of a teen. A child, they are often engaging with friends and peers. They're often moving about. And what has actually happened during the pandemic is that many of them have taken to really being attached to their screens. We adults have used that a lot for work and for communication with others. Our children have used it for their school and for communication with others. So if you can imagine a young child or a teenager. Sitting in front of a screen for several hours a day, and not video gaming, by the way, doing other things—that is what this has done to our, our teens and our children. And so we know what the physical impact has been on all of us adults, especially as we're you know trying to return to some of the clothes we were wearing prior to the pandemic. We certainly can appreciate that, but when you think about the youth, uh, besides that physical impact, there has been some other very significant, what I would call. Um, psychosocial, emotional impact for them. And by that, I mean, they haven't been able to have their normal social interactions with their peers. It's affected them emotionally. Um, and it has also caused them, many of them who might have a tendency, for instance, to be anxious, it's it's accelerated some of underlying psychiatric issues, which would be some psychological components. The other thing I would like everybody to stop and think about we adults are able to have a long range vision of something. When it happens, as bad as it may be, we're able to usually say there will be an end to this. For a child or a teenager, they have more difficulty with that. And so, what all of this has contributed to, in addition to one other factor, which is another social issue and also can be an economic and emotional issue, parents. Parents have had to struggle with managing workloads or with losing jobs or with going having to go to work um, if it's a job where they've had to have contact with people that's been frightening for the family, this can cause some emotional upset. There can have been economic downturn in the family because one parent has had to stay home, whereas it might have been a two-income household. Um, and then, as you will know, women have left the workforce in major numbers, and one of the reasons has been is to care for children in the home during this time. And then the other thing I would say as I wrap this up, is that they have had losses. They have had, besides the loss of peer relationships, they have had the loss often of someone who they would have spent time with, such as a grandparent, an elderly relative. Many of these kids have lost someone who has died during the pandemic. And so they haven't had an appropriate way often in which to grieve that. So they have a lot of losses as well. So when you think about it, it's been a pandemic upon them for their development and their psychological and emotional needs.
0: Yeah, you you really uh, raise a lot of important points about and paint a, a very interesting and enlightening portrait about what's happened to the school-age kids. I guess, you know, and you touched on this a little bit, I've got a vision of of school-age children sitting alone with nothing but screens all day. And it's whether for school or games or communicating with their friends or, or watching movies. And you touched on this a moment ago, but it doesn't sound like my vision of them playing games all day. It doesn't sound like that was very accurate or was it.
2: I think it was very active that they were sitting around and not being very physically active. And I want you to think about those children who were either only children or who had a big age gap between their age and the age of their only other sibling or siblings. Those children would also, in some ways, have been like only children. Um, And by that, I mean, they would have had no one to interact with or very few people to interact with. The children were uh, to do schoolwork. I know in some households that was able to happen. We are seeing that that has not been uniform and it is understandable as to why. Um, and because of that, one of the challenges I know with returning to school is there's going to be some academic gap as well. But what you would have seen is children on screens doing their schoolwork or perhaps chatting with somebody online, perhaps gaming. As well, a lot of it depended on how well supervised that they might be. Um, I think we saw there was a big uptick as the pandemic progressed in terms of kids expressing a lot of anxiety and depressive symptoms. And I talked with a team during this time who said, you know, I really think I'm going to always be isolated. I don't think I'm going to ever be able to really go do things with any of my friends again. And our frame of reference is much different because we've lived longer and we've had more life experiences. This was a huge trauma for many of these kids and an inability to see past it. So I think your vision is accurate. Um, I think often those children were in solitary or when they were doing this, so to speak.
0: Let's, yeah, let's, let's shift gears a little bit um, from the, from the home life of the, of isolation and, and all those screens, um, and the transition back to school, is that move, that transition from home life and screen time and back to the regular classroom and sitting in class with uh, other youngsters and their teachers, is that is that difficult? And if it is, so- how come?
2: Okay, So I think there's going to be a mixed bag on this. And I've had the opportunity to speak with um, an agency where I was able to do a coaching session, a nonprofit agency that works with girls Um, and they work with them um, after school. And so they were actually able to do some activities with them during that part of the summer before we had the, the surge that occurred. So they were able to see what it was like to have girls come back together with precautions Um, And so I really felt like I got a window into what this may be like in the classroom. So in terms of it being a mixed bag, the first thing I'm going to say is that you are going to have uh, children and teens who are going to be overjoyed. They're going to be so glad to be able to leave the house and get back to a more normal way of functioning. You know, even if they're wearing masks, they're going to be glad to be able to interact with each other, see each other. And that was some of the report that I got from the from the uh, people who work at the agency I discussed. Uh, But then you are going to have some of the children who are going to have a lot of anxiety. They're going to be a lot more fearful. And if you will think about anxiety and anxiety symptoms, before the pandemic, 25% of Americans would qualify for some type of anxiety disorder at some time during their life. That's one out of four people. That's anything from a simple phobia to a very severe anxiety disorder, such as severe um, panic disorder that can be debilitating um, or uh, post traumatic stress disorder. So, when you keep that in mind, this was prior to the pandemic. We all know anxiety symptoms have increased. Just as an aside, I was just looking at a study that was done with healthcare workers. Um, who were working during the pandemic and last summer a year ago, and it showed that in terms that almost 50% of them qualified for either an anxiety or a depressive diagnosis. So we know that the stress of the pandemic has impacted children and teens. If they already had a predisposition to have anxiety, I suspect this stressor may have accelerated it. I'm hearing from a lot of my peers in their outpatient practices that they're getting a lot of calls related to anxiety. And when I talked to this group that works with girls, what I was told is that a lot of the children were very happy to be there, but there were some children who seemed fearful and anxious. They kind of held themselves back. They were not getting close to others. Everyone was masked at these events, and they were following guidelines to be safe but they had to walk over and have some conversations, reassure the children of their safety, reassure them they were taking proper precautions before those children would engage. So I think that is one thing that will be a challenge. Um, but I think that at least the other thing that's a positive is that all those kids are going to say, "I'm ready. I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and come back and interact with my peers." Um, I also want to mention one other thing, and that has to do with attention and focus. We know that there are children there are more children who have anxiety than have ADD but we do know those children exist and if they've been working in their home environment it's less distracting and many of them will go back to the school setting and not be able to cope as well with the distractions of being in the school setting so i will tell you that teachers you know are definitely preparing to
0: work with the kids back in the classroom and have some strategies for that well speaking of you know teachers and and uh, even parents and 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 uh, guardians, is there is there a best practice list that you you know of, or some kind of a, I don't know, menu or cafeteria of things to choose from for uh, preparing the the young people to go back to school?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, there. Let me just sort of go through those, um, and keep in mind these were things I always recommended prior to the pandemic for children in my practice. Um, I would state to parents that you should start approximately two weeks, 14 to 20 days, two to two and a half weeks before going back to school. You want to reshape your child's bedtime to be more similar to what it would be at school. So with this being the pandemic, people's hours have been all over the place. I would say you need to determine when your child will need to go to bed and when they will need to get up. And then you just don't overnight change that schedule. You begin to phase them into it which can take about two weeks. That's the first thing I would recommend. The second thing I would recommend is if your child will be going to a different school, and many children, because of how long they've been out of school, it may be a different school than the one they were at before, uh, drive your child to the school and walk around the exterior of the building. You can at least do that. If there is an opportunity to go inside, that will be beneficial as well, so that they can visualize and see that building before they go. It will be less frightening to them. They'll have it. They'll have some mastery of that. Um, the third thing I would recommend is if your child is returning to school with friends, encourage interaction between your child and those friends prior to school starting. And then the next thing I would recommend, the fourth thing, is sit down with your child and just no matter what age they are, and ask them how they think school's going to go for them. Ask them to tell them how they and I say, hey, how would you like school to go? Help them develop reasonable goals for school, which isn't just academics. It's also about having fun with their peers. And let the focus be on relationships and your child enjoying school. Don't make the focus on achievement only. Um, I will tell you of a little boy that I know um, who will be going into sixth grade. And um, he is a bit of an introvert. He's a very sweet child. He He has some close friends. He's a little introverted. So I was just chatting with him. And I said, hey. How do you think it's going to go when you go back to school? He said, I'm kind of worried. I said, you're worried? He goes, yeah, I'm worried about you know being with the other kids. I said, what are your worries? He said, oh, he said about how I'm going to be talking with them and how we're going to be getting along with each other and all those things. And so my automatic assumption being who I am is, oh, he's worried he's going to have trouble making friends. But all I did was continue to ask him questions. And what I got out of him was, He didn't really want to be overwhelmed with having to interact with a lot of kids. He didn't really want to be in a rush of kids. So what he figured out was there was two kids he knew that were his good friends. He was going to talk to them before he went back so that he kind of reestablished that connection and he wouldn't feel any anxiety about having to connect with them there with the throng of other kids around. So he was kind of getting his secure base, so to speak, before he went back. And the last thing I would say is, if you develop some structure back into your child's life in advance, you're doing more things than you think you are. You're helping them anticipate school in a positive way to help them prepare, but you're also teaching them a life skill. You're teaching them that whatever they're going to be going into, they need to think about it in advance. They need to prepare for it. They need to visualize how it's going to be. And they need to set reasonable expectations for themselves for when they go back. So those are some ways that parents and guardians can definitely work with children about returning to school.
0: That's a super helpful um, list. And I got to ask you, does that apply to um, older students, high school and college? It absolutely
2: does, because um, here's the thing. Getting into a structured routine is always helpful in returning to school. Frankly, I think some of the kids I saw who were in college, I mean, they would be up till three in the morning every night. So they had to really work to get their sleep cycles back on track. Um, and I think for the older student, their ability to think about who they want to be when they're going to school and how they want to show up is very important. Um, parents should think about having those important conversations with their teen or young adult about a month or so before school starts. It always helps, again, if they know what the school looks like and they can visualize being there. And then help them get in touch with their vision about how they want to be, how they want to show up, and how it will go for them.
0: Well, I really want to thank Dr. Deborah Atkinson for making time for us out of her busy schedule, as you heard. Um, She has a lot going on, and her advice to us and to listeners about how their students and children and charges can start school and be better prepared for it. Was just invaluable. There's a lot more of that interview that we didn't have time for today, but I'm confident we'll find room for it on the website and on the podcast sooner than you think. Well, on behalf of uh, Dr. Stephen Goldstein, I want to thank you for listening to the Houston Healthcare Initiative podcast. If you want to hear more than 50, probably over 60 by now, podcasts that we have done over the last couple of years, you can go to the website at HoustonHealthCareInitiative.org, and there is just piles of stuff there for you. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends about us. And be sure to come back next time for another edition of the Houston Healthcare Initiative Podcast.